Listen up, normies. It's time to talk some shit. This is a Scooble cast where we talk holy shit about what it means to follow Jesus in the sacred chaos of the 21st century. My name is Benjo. I'm a 20-something anarcho-whatever pastor committed to creating safe spaces for figuring out faith, doing the work, and getting up to holy mischief wherever and whenever we need to. So for the next chunk of time, I'm just a talking head on a podcast, and you're listening to this for some reason, so good luck to you. Let's get into it. Baby, bet, hey, Cobra X, hey. Okay, um, I think we're ready. I think we're ready to just get into the the sauce. We're getting into the sauce today. Um, I'm in Brooklyn. I'm in Greenpoint. I'm here for work when I'm not doing the pastor thing. Um, and when I'm not doing this, I'm selling wine and spirits. So I'm over here for an industry tasting where we tasted some really cool shit and I met some really cool people um, or where I met friends, some again for the first time in a while, in like a year and a half, and some uh, friends who I've been re- become really close with, but I've never met them in person because I'm extremely online um, and it's my toxic trait, but you know, I make friends that way and it's been cool. So that's awesome. And full disclosure, we recorded some Boozilla casts. <laughs> we recorded some Boozilla casts uh, prior to this. And um, it's just been crazy. We've been, it's, I mean, it's work, but it feels like a rager. <laughs> and I did, I've never gone to ragers before. So this is a, a new experience for me. But we recorded some Boozilla casts that are absolutely fucking unusable. Can't use them. It's problematic. Everything was problematic. We were drinking a lot. And that's sort of the point of the Boozle cast. And uh, most of these people don't care about church or anything. So it was just a lot of shit talking. It was, it was very funny. So I'll, I'll go back and I'll see if anything at all, anything at all is usable. Um, but the running joke throughout our recording was, yeah, we'll, we'll cut that. Yeah, we'll, we'll cut that. And, uh, it's a bunch of yes ending and just things that like, oh, well, let's just say you don't want to show the podcast to your mom if it comes out. Anyway, this will be a long one. I've got a coffee next to me to cool down because um, my drinking is on cool down right now. Um, hello. Welcome to... Scubla cast. This is Scubla Paul. I'm your host. Uh, and uh, real quick, I just want to say thank you to everyone who's reached out on um, Twitter, Instagram, um, just to say what's up or talk to me about the last episode or to ask about how the resignation is going. Uh, also, FYI, the resignation is going fine. I'm still working at the church. Um, uh, for the next two weeks and, um, I'm, I'm trying to 
trying to get them to get used to what work is going to look like or what the day-to-day is going to look like without me. So thanks for asking. Um, Yeah. Also genuinely just enjoy talking with y'all about things that we have mutual interest in, whether that's shit talking about a meme or when you guys send me up pictures or like a, a video of a pastor saying something or some of you have asked me to comment on a, on a, on a pastor's Instagram post or whatever. I I love it. So thank you um, for engaging that way. Also, if you think a particular episode and, or uh, uh, might entertain or interest a friend, please, by all means, send them the podcast. I mean, if you know any other Christian or any other just person who is, uh, who isn't in the top 1%, that's who this podcast is for. It's for people who aren't in the top 1%. So, yeah, send it to your friends who don't have a summer home. Um, anyway, enough of that. We're, we're going to continue our series where we just debunk, where we debunk these uh, basic common assumptions and naturalized beliefs of the capitalist worldview. Um, and um, I think it's, I think we'll just keep doing that for some time. Maybe there's maybe three or four more. We'll see. Um, I get reminded of new shit to complain about when I talk to um, uh, regular people on my regular Instagram. But this episode's uh, unquestionable, indisputable fact of life is this. It's the quote, workers are paid for all their work, end quote. Employees receive back a wage proportionate to what they put in. Workers are paid for some of their work minutes, some of their work hours, some of their work days. Employees are paid for every single time, every single second of time on their job. So I want to start by briefly articulating the capitalist way of thinking about wages and incomes. And I got pretty heated about this a couple uh, days ago. I was just I was doom scrolling on YouTube and I was looking for interviews that I knew would piss me off. And I watched uh, um, a debate with Jordan B. Jordan B. Peterson, who is the worst person, and Slavoj Zizek, which is he's an angel baby. He's an angel baby. But um, uh, Jordan B. Peterson did a ten like his first opening statements was ten reasons why the Communist Manifesto is flawed. And he did like a 10 bullet point, like he was in high school presenting, <laughs> presenting a, like, a, like a book report. Anyway, I got pissed off about that. And he talks about all of these things. Uh, so it's really fresh in my mind and I'm pretty pissed about it. So I want to start by just articulating the capitalist way of thinking about wages and incomes. Because in order to dialogue with this popular perspective, we need to be able to articulate it as a capitalist would. We need to be able to understand how the majority of people living in our capitalist society understands how it works. Because we can't just do the, like, uh, what's the what's wrong with the world? Capitalism. What's wrong with the world? Capitalism. Like, we can't just, like, parrot that off. We have to actually know what the fuck we're talking about here. Um, if we don't want to be taken seriously. So... Uh, we're, after we do that, we understand how capitalist society understands the way wages work, then we'll offer a very different understanding of income and wages. One that not only disagrees with a capitalist perspective, but it problematizes it. And in the end, we'll spend some time in the book of Isaiah, because um, this is the Scubula cast, and I'm still going to talk about the Bible and shit. Okay, 
So, um, uh, also Isaiah, because talking about something that people are mad about, uh, Isaiah, the author of the authors of Isaiah were pretty mad about oppression of workers. Um, but we'll take it from the top. Okay. And we'll make it drop. And that is, um, some wet ass podcast. Jesus Christ. Sorry for slurping into the mic, but this is still an ASMR podcast. Um, according to neoclassical economic theory, the, the particular economic theory which has dominated U.S. economics since the mid-1970s, um, whether a person receives an income by way of selling their labor for a paycheck or by purchasing other people people's labor um, uh, or something or other, someone receives rent from renting out land or a reward for owning technology or materials used in the processes of production is ultimately a matter of individual preference, a matter of individual choice. The fundamental reason why some people are employees and others are employers is ultimately the result of particular individuals, essential human nature. It's what they themselves choose and it's because of who they are. And so in the market, you've got one person look uh, looking to make an income by selling their labor and another person looking to make an income by buying other people's labor. And both are individual choice. And the two individuals come together and they freely make a deal that's so fair. The employer says, I'll pay you X number of dollars for every hour you work and I'll expect you to work, say, like 50 hours a week. Or we'll pay you X number of dollars a year given that you work this many hours a week and same thing with salary and wages. These will be your wages and the labor thought to be absolutely free to accept or deny, right? The laborer in this framework is thought to be absolutely free to accept or deny says, yeah, I'll take it. Sounds fair. Now, this worker, according to all capitalist economic theories, not just neoclassical, is not agreeing to be paid for part of their work. The contract says it will be paid for every single minute on the job, not a second less, and of course, not a second more. This is to say that when the worker contributes by laboring, they will receive a proportionate return on or reward for their contribution. That's what economic theory, uh, capitalist economic theory is saying that's happening. If that worker chooses not to work and chooses leisure over income, like chilling out, chilling out, maxing, relaxing, all cool, over income, then they won't receive anything in return because they chose not to contribute. That's on them. So if someone chooses to work only 50 hours a week, right? Only 50 hours a week, but there are 168 hours in every week, they are choosing income for 50 hours in leisure, uh, 50 hours in work, and for leisure, 119 hours, right? Makes sense. Individuals only receive returns on their contributions, and in the employee's case, the selling of their labor. The same goes for the capitalists, the capitalists, right? The employer. While there are several different kinds of capitalists, I want us to focus on the employer capitalist, i.e., the capitalist who purchases the labor power of others. An employer receives no returns, no rewards from what the employer does uh, not themselves contribute. Right? Whether or not they receive an income is determined by whether or not they are willing to invest to contribute, uh, uh, which is their contribution being in the purchasing of labor, land, technology, and raw materials needed for production of new commodities, essentially. 
So essentially, both employees and employers receive income and wages based on their choice to individually contribute no more and certainly no less. For example, the hourly wage of four of 40,000 annual salary for an employee working 40 hours a week would be roughly like $19 an hour. As the CEO of General Motors, the hourly um, wage rate of uh, Mary Barra is $21.96 million. Uh, that's the package in 2018, right? That's what, like $10,558 an hour, right? $10,558 an hour, right? So um, she was such a hard worker last year that she made in a single hour what many U.S. Americans make in four months, which means in three hours, in three hours, she may uh, make an entire year my entire year, right? That was the same year GM closed, um, I think it was like three or four production sites. So some 14,000 jobs, all in the name of technological innovation. And just for kicks and giggles, I did the math, which I'm not fucking good at doing, um, but I did it. I had it checked by an accountant. And uh, I'm, I'm shitting you not, I have an accountant friend who uh, is the only one. I'm allowing myself one accountant friend. Um, and... Uh, this person making $19 an hour, working 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year with no time off would have to work 549,000 years to make what Barbara made, what Ibarra made, I didn't call her Barbara, what Ibarra made in a single year. So one more time, a full-time worker receiving $19 an hour would need to work 549,000 years to make what the CEO of General Motors made in 2018 alone. But remember, wages or incomes, according to the capitalist perspective, are equivalent to what employees and employers contribute themselves. No more and no less. That's the unquestionable assumption of the capitalist worldview, that you're getting paid for what you do right? No more, no less. That's the unquestionable assumption. So workers are paid for all of their work, not some of it, not part of it, but all of their work. So if you work 40 hours, you get paid for all 40 hours of labor, right? And so those who are willing to contribute more will make more. Those who individually choose income over leisure will be rewarded more than those who do not. That's the simple math tied to our mysterious individual wants and desires, right? Some people want to employ others. Others want to be employed rather than employ, right? So now one thing that I want us to see here, while both seriously disagree on human nature um, and the role of the state for both Keynesianism leaning structuralist capitalist. And if you don't know what Keynesianism is, I have a list of books that I think people should read. And there's a primer on a Keynesianism that um, I can direct you to just shoot me a DM. Um, but both Keynesianism, Keynesianist leaning structuralist capitalist and neoclassical leaning private capitalists, capitalism is inherently non-exploitative in their minds. That's how they view it, right? All According to all capitalist theories, there's no such thing as legal exploitation in a capitalist economy, right? Sure, there's some illegal shady stuff where people are exploited, but in the legal free market, people receive back a return a pr uh, proportionate to what they put in, right? And this is incredibly historically uh, unaware because um, slavery was a capitalist in enterprise. So it doesn't work out, but 
Anyway, it's a coping strategy for these folks. But individual incomes are tied to what individuals give in this framework. So why are the rich as wealthy as they are? Because uh, they choose to be. Why are the poor as impoverished as they are? Because they choose to be. That $21.96 million in 2018 that Barr received was proportionate to what she contributed, apparently. Certainly, she didn't get paid a dollar or cent more than she deserved. And the auto workers making some $20 an hour year after year received income proportionate to what they themselves invested. Not $1 more and not $1 less. It's the purest ideal state of labor fairness, right? Anything else would just be unjust, right? You just get paid for what you put in. And so when the workers ask for more money, when workers have historically unionized and demanded better working conditions and higher wages, it's been said that they are trying to make money that doesn't belong to them. They're trying to rob their employers. They're ungrateful, right? But you know what? Incomes and wages as rewards or returns on contributions and investments is not the only way to think about wages. In fact, some people believe that surplus producing employees are not paid for all of their work. Instead, they're paid for only a portion of their labor time. They are underpaid and receive only some of the fruits of their labor. Essentially, surplus producing laborers or laborers or employees put in more than what they get back and they have no real say in the matter of what that looks like. So let's just, you know, before we get too heady, let's just flesh this out a little bit because we got to do the theory. We got to think about it. So uh, Karl Marcus, Karl Marx was uh, not the first person to come to this conclusion. Which everybody do you are you a Marxist? Are you are you uh, is this cultural Marxism? I I, I seen that on uh, Prager U. I seen that on Prager U. You, you crazy demonic, I rebuke you. You know they say shit like that. Um, but Karl Marx wasn't even the first to come to this conclusion. The conclusion that workers are producing more than the, what they receive in return. He wasn't the first to think that. But he was one of the first to analyze the relationship between employers and employees in this way to such a great depth. And I, I know that the name Marx carries a lot of baggage. Was my, made the, you know who Karl Marx is? Do you, 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 you subscribe to Karl Marx? Yeah, I make that joke because it's a trigger word. It's a buzzword. It carries a lot of baggage in our capitalist society, um, and I argue due to propaganda. But today, I just want to focus on the claim. Let's forget about Marx for a little bit, but let's focus on the claim that employees are underpaid, because that's the claim. It's always saying, it's always saying employees are underpaid. Marx, like many of his fellow European contemporaries, were very much interested in realizing liberty, equality, and fraternity, and, and democracy. But rather than delivering societies to liberty, equality, fraternity, and democracy, Marx gradually came to see capitalism as a system that continually failed to realize those ideals for a majority of the people. In fact, for the masses, it undermines the very ideals that he and his contemporaries were taken by, and he located one of the fundamental problems to be the class structure of this capitalist business and enterprise. Um, capitalist way of organizing the production, appropriation, and distribution of surplus, um, right, those extra goods and services that are produced instead of seeing employees and employers as simply making returns and in incomes based on their individual contributions, Right. So he was seeing the the power dynamics. He was seeing the class structure rather than just like the the basic assumption that employers and employees are getting exactly their incomes are directly um, correlated to their own contributions. Um, 
But Mark saw that this is coming from the collective contributions of their surplus producing employees. So what the employers were making were directly related to the surplus that the employee employees were making, uh, which means uh, that the employers are not reaping the fruits of their own labor, but rather they are reaping the fruits of other people's collective labor, which means that employees are not paid for all of their work. Instead, workers exchange the rights to all of their newly produced fruits and uh, surplus labor um, for a wage. That's only a portion of what they actually produce, but the employer keeps the rest for themselves, maybe a little bit, maybe a lot, right? Not all created equal, okay? But how does uh, he come to this conclusion? How does Marx get there? First, some workers are what Marx referred to as productive laborers. These are the workers that directly labor with materials or technology, whether that's machines or food or whatever, what have you, to produce new goods and services that are then sold on the market for a new value. And while unproductive or enabling laborers are also important to this process, which we're going to talk about another time. I just want to stick with workers who directly produce goods or services. The migrant workers in, uh, in California vineyards and plantations working the vines and soil they're surplus workers. The construction workers on the I-70 in the Midwest working with machinery are surplus workers. The pizza makers at Domino's, the assembly line workers at Tesla, the mechanics who work on your own car down the street, the nurses and doctors who use technology to perform procedures, the workers at Foxconn who make uh, all of these phones that are all are, they're all producers of surplus value. That's realized through exchanges on the market and all the newly produced value immediately belongs to the employers, but the employers or the board of directors are not the producers of the surplus. Rather, they direct and appropriate the collectively produced surplus. They legally take it all and they distribute it however they want. The employer alone without the employee decides how the collectively produced surplus will be distributed. Now, if all of the surplus went to the one replenishing the materials used in uh, production, right, paying back the owner of the raw materials used, which in this case is the employer, and then afterwards to paying those who actually directed, directly produced the goods and services, then the capitalist would actually not be taking anything above than what they contributed, right? Because all they've contributed are the materials, so they get their return on investment, Right. But that's not what happens in capitalist businesses. Employers replenish the materials, but then they pay the uh, employee wage value less than what they produced so that they can keep the surplus, the extra revenue. Well, that surplus is used in a variety of ways. That's where employer profits come from, as it, that's how a 21.96 million CEO compensation package becomes possible. And then to make this clear, Mark splits the labor time of the productive employee into two. Um, and says that a portion of the working day goes to making their wages. He calls this necessary labor time, while a second portion of their working day goes to producing the surplus. He calls this surplus labor. During one part of the working day, employees produce the sum total of their own wages, right? Their paychecks. While the other part of the day, they produce the incomes of those who purchase their labor, which is to say they produce more than what they receive back. So how do productive workers make their incomes? Their own collective work? Where do the incomes of employers uh, come from? Other people's collective work. 
Marx showed that in the same way the class structures of feudalism and slavery separated those who produce the surplus from those who appropriate and distribute the surplus, capitalism as well excludes the workers from democratically appropriating and distributing the fruits of their own direct labor. Um, th th this is what uh, Mar uh, Marxists and other leftists might call wage slavery. The capitalist class structure is systemically authoritarian and anti-democratic, right? It needs to consolidate power in order to wield it over others. Instead of having serfs and lords or slaves and masters, we have employees and employers, workers and capitalists. Um, in this division within the class structure, this division within the process of producing and appropriating and distributing surpluses that Marx believed was simply legalized employer theft, when he and many after him called exploitation. It, it's crazy because when we as Americans um, do uh, global studies or whatever, and when we analyze other class structures from other times and or in other societies, we usually equate taking the fruits of other people's labors with exploitation. And if employers in the U.S. take the fruits of employee labor, why wouldn't we see the capitalist employer-employee relations as structurally exploitative as well? Think about it. Why do we say that Africans and African-Americans in the U.S. were exploited by slaves? Like, what's, what's constituting their being exploited? Well, one person or group, the white masters, put to work another group, the black slaves, and they exclusively owned all the fruits produced by the slaves' labor. And the masters took a portion of the newly produced surplus um, and clothed and fed and sheltered the slaves so that they can get up the next day, the next week, the next month, and keep producing more and more surplus. But the slaves produced more than what they received back, right? They were given meager, meager, like bare minimum to survive so that they can continue to produce. They produced more than what was given to them by their masters, which means white masters were living off the labor of their black slaves. They were taking a portion of surplus produced by someone else's labor, someone other than themselves. And that gap, the gap between what the slaves themselves produced in total and what they actually received back is the rate of exploitation. That is what makes slavery exploitative. Um, it's wrong for all sorts of other reasons, but the quality of its exploitativity, I just made up that word, is, is that rate. So seen in this light, workers too are not paid for all their work. In fact, a portion of every working day or of every working week produces value not for their paychecks, but for their bosses' paychecks. The board of directors and major shareholders, they take the fruits of other people's labor. Workers are not paid for all their work because to produce surplus for a wage is to be exploited. Hierarchically, to take the fruits of another's labor is to exploit. So as Christians, okay, though, right, how, how might we think of this theologically? Well, for one, exploitation ain't new. It's not a new thing. So there's an enormous amount of resources within our expansive religious tradition that deals with exploitation. Some of it's fucking for it. Some of it's against it. And personally, I think it's really important that we acknowledge that there is no pure essential Christianity. There is no true Christianity that is perfectly good and perfectly just and perfectly right and theologically sound. Christianity has perhaps, perhaps predominantly reinforced violent, exclusive, and oppressive structures and cultural norms. In the scriptures and in one's own particular Christian tradition, anyone can easily find tons of examples of support for exploitation. 
But the faith has not only served the interests of the beneficiaries of domination and exploitation, Christianity has also been a source of inspiration for liberation and empowerment for oppressed and in resisting peoples, a co-conspirator within the resistance to the way things are as opposed imposed upon us through political and cultural hegemony. And one passage that jumped to my mind that could be heard as aligned with those who confront and critique normalized exploitative powers comes from the book of Isaiah. And it's in the chapter, it's in chapter 15. Just to read a little bit of it, I'll read verses three through seven. And so remember that Isaiah is, uh, he, he said to be the mouth of the Lord, but these first, there's these worshipers that he's kind of quoting. He's quoting their, um, their questions because he's going to respond to the questions. And they ask, why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you don't notice? And then the prophet as the mouth of the Lord replies, look, you serve your own interest on your fast day. You oppress all your workers. You only fast to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting, like the one you're doing today, will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in a sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast, the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the songs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your own house when you see the naked to cover them and to not hide yourself from your own kin? All right, so apparently some people are fasting and they're worshiping this God and they want to know why God isn't interested in their fasts and their worship. And the prophet Isaiah, who's, who again is said to be the mouth of the Lord, says, as the Lord, listen, you can't oppress your own people for your own gain. You cannot violate the well-being of workers, the displaced and the desperate, and hope that God will be with you. In fact, Isaiah says God is working against the oppressors of the workers. And those fasts who's, uh, who are pleasing... Those fasts that are pleasing to God are those who are working against the bonds of injustice, are resisting and transforming oppressive systems, and uh, are undoing the, uh, the ties of a heavy yoke, even smashing them, breaking these yokes. Apparently, this author believed that to oppress workers, to oppress others, was to work against the desires of God. But the oppressive uh, fasters have normalized and naturalized their way of living. They're confused. Why do we fast? But you don't see right? For them, uh, they were confused. Why humble ourselves, but you're not even going to notice. And as he reveals to them that they're trying to worship two very different gods who hold two very different desires for the people. That first God is a God who encourages the oppression of workers, who applauds self-interested gain at the expense of others. This God tolerates the reality, the existence of hunger, homelessness, and poverty. But this other God, the God of the prophet Isaiah, is a God who confronts the oppression of workers, who refuses to tolerate it. He takes sides. And as chapter 61 eventually tells us, this God is actually um, uh, in, a, in a mission to liberate and restore a God who works from the bottom up. And while the author isn't explicitly discussing the production, appropriation, and distribution of surplus, he isn't solely talking about exploitation as the hierarchical reaping of fruits um, shown and produced by other people's labor. We know that these holy worshipers and pious fasters are actually working other people for their own benefit, to which we can assume they are in some way or another taking the goods and services produced by the laborers and using the rewards as they please. 
Might we take this scriptural rejection of oppression and this prophetic repudiation of apathy towards suffering and extend it to explicitly reject any and all kinds of exploitation, even capitalist exploitation? Employees must come to the understanding that contrary to the common wisdom of our capitalist society, not only are our workers excluded from the important decision-making, like whether GM should have laid off 14,000 workers and simultaneously given the CEO $20 million, Right? Are not workers also not paid for all of their work? To labor for wages under a capitalist business is to be exploited, and a system that exploits workers is a system in opposition to the desires of Isaiah's God. The same prophet Jesus quotes when he inaugurates his ministry in the Gospel according to Luke, a society structured around the exploitation of, of, of the money or even the exploitation of a few is a society whose fasts make war against the God of liberation and restoration, and God is not on their side. Um, it's, it's a farce, folks. The capitalist system is exploitative. And uh, working against the, the, the currents requires bravery. And like we said in other episodes, an adversarial faith. Um, thanks for listening. Burn Babylon down. The break is over. Yeah. I run it up, run it up for the ratchets. Tick-tock bitches doing dances. Rodeo blasting in my mansion. With all this damn fatty, I've been feeling like a champion.